It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Victorian historian John Ashton wrote of the 1730s, quote, The canker of gambling was surely eating into the very heart of the nation, end quote. Why was gambling such a visible concern at this particular time and place? Surely, Britons had been gambling for centuries, playing cards, rolling dice, and placing wagers on hunting halls, cockfights, and dog races since at least the times of the Norman Conquest. And that's the 11th century for those of you whose medieval history is rusty. So in short, it had been men who played the cards, rolled the dice, and placed the wagers. In Georgian London, aristocratic women were doing it, and their gambling was visible to a critical public. Women gamblers were not the only aristocratic women criticized for flouting traditional gender roles. The Blue Stockings, an exclusive circle of learned, wealthy women founded by Elizabeth Montague, were attacked viciously in public forums. So much so that famed literati eventually did all they could to avoid the moniker. In his 1890s reimagining of A Dinner of Dead Literati, French historian Augustin Filon includes a scene where the group tries to distance themselves from the blue stockings. Don't allude to blue stockings in my presence, cried the author of Evelina, that's Francis Burney, making a shield of her fan. Then Edmund Burke asserts that blue stockings are all pedantic. He is so over them. He continues... And Mrs. Chalmondeley, do you give her a place among the blue stockings? She's too great a woman for that. Like gamblers, learned women of the 18th century were not remembered fondly by Victorian historians. Blue stocking quickly became a pejorative term. In this episode, the last of our Secret Clubs and Society series, we're bending the rules a bit to include some not-so-secret clubs, though both were quite exclusive. Most women's societies were add-ons or auxiliaries to men's clubs. So think of um, women masons or the KKK women's auxiliary. I wanted to focus on a couple of societies made for and by women. The fair ladies and the blue stockings fit the bill. Their legacies are, however, shaped by their critics and the moralizing Victorian antiquarians who told their stories. At its core, this episode is a story of collective womanhood within patriarchal societies. I'm Marissa. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. (laughs) 
want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We are halfway to our goal, more than halfway to our goal of $300 a month. And when we hit that, we'll be getting new recording equipment. Woohoo! So thank you to you generous souls who are already giving, and particularly our auger and excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to Colin, Peggy, Chris, Danielle, Maggie, and Lauren. Your generosity will go down in history. Ha ha ha, get it? Ha! Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. In 1743, Elizabeth Montague wrote in a letter to the Duchess of Portland, quote, In a woman's education, little but outward accomplishments is regarded. Sure, the men are very imprudent to endeavor to make fools of those to whom they so much trust their honor and fortune. But it is in the nature of mankind to hazard their peace to secure power. And they know fools make the best slaves. End quote. So a translation here. What she's saying is that men prefer to have fools for wives who dishonor them and gamble away their fortunes than wives who are educated and cultured because the latter are greater threats to their husband's power. In these lines, Montague sets up the duality that shaped aristocratic women's lives for several decades to come. She presents two options. An aristocratic woman was either a vapid, immoral, spendthrift, or gambler, or a bookish, self-possessed intellectual. Both options were threatening to men, but Montague asserts that men would prefer the vapid gambler to an overly educated woman. Montague was the nucleus of an exclusive ring of wealthy and educated women who gathered regularly to discuss literature, philosophy, and politics. Montague, Frances Burney, Hester Thrill, Hannah Moore, Ava Garrick, Elizabeth Vesey, Hester Chapone, and Elizabeth Carter formed the informal Blue Stocking Society in the early 1750s. They collected no dues and performed no initiation ceremonies, but using the vagaries of polite society, they controlled access to their inner circle. A society specifically for women, the Blue Stockings excluded men from regular membership, but endowed a few choice men like Edmund Burke, Samuel Johnson, and Horace Walpole with honorary Blue Stocking status. Most blue stockings enjoyed successful literary careers, and during their lifetimes, they earned affectionate nicknames from their admirers. Elizabeth Vesey was called the Sylph, and Hester Thrale, the dispenser of ambrosia, by their intimates. Montague was called Montague Minerva, or sometimes Queen of the Blues, was a respected literary critic. Frances Burney, called Pretty Fanny by author Samuel Johnson, wrote the hit novel Evelina. Hester Chapone authored the 1770s most popular conduct book, which was singled out by Mary Wollstonecraft as the most valuable advice book of her time. Elizabeth Carter was a renowned translator of French-language scientific texts and was dubbed Sappho by Laura Littleton. Hannah Moore was called Saint Hannah by Horace Walpole, and this is for reasons we'll get to later on. She was a celebrated playwright whose play Percy was performed at Covent Garden, starring actress Sarah Siddons. Members of the Blue Stocking Society were fed up with Georgian Britain's limiting expectations of wealthy women. They valued intensive educations and literary accomplishments over the vocational and conduct training typically experienced by young women. 
Some blue stockings espoused radical politics or issued public feminist retorts to literary notables. They also tended to have fewer children than other women in their station. Of the OG blue stockings, Bernie and Montague had only one child each. Moore and Carter remained unmarried, while Chapone, Vessie, and Garrick were married but had no children. The only exception was Hester Thrale Piozzi, who married twice and gave birth to uh, 12 children. This was, and perhaps still is, transgressive in a time when privileged women valued wifehood, motherhood, and domestic bliss over all else. The blue stockings received their fair share of disapproval, but so did their vapid, gambling foils. To some contemporaries, and to many later historians, the blue stockings were a decent alternative to vile, aristocratic women gamers. Poet Alexander Pope wrote the following lines in the 1730s after a highly publicized falling out with Ambassador Edward and Lady Mary Wortley Montague. So this is Elizabeth Montague's cousin. Hmm. Why Phryne and Sappho raise that monstrous sum? Alas, they fear a man will cost a plum. So these are two of lines um, from a poem that was a thinly veiled criticism of Lady Mary, and she was nicknamed Sappho here, and her friend Molly Skurrit, who was nicknamed Phryne. The line suggested that the two women gambled in order to win enough money to buy a man. All of his possible meanings were scandalous. He either meant that Lady Mary was going to ruin her marriage through infidelity, which would cost her dearly, that Skerritt, who was unmarried, could not attract a husband without paying for one, or that either or both might resort to bribery to smooth over any scandal. Sixty years after Alexander Pope's sick burn of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, his poems were anthologized and re-released. His words resonated with social commentators and bitter vice reformers. On Monday, June 27, 1796, the Morning Chronicle published a short piece meant to puff, which means to promote or, or publicize, a new edition of the poetical works of Alexander Pope. Pope had been dead for 50 years, but the anonymous author of the puff piece found support for his own social commentary in Pope's work. So this is what this gentleman puffer, um, wrote about Pope's uh, work, right? The object of the pharaoh ladies in maintaining their favorite amusement and lucrative fame in defiance of the threats of justice and the hisses of public scorn seems to be exposed in the following lines of Pope. And then he reproduced Pope's lines about Sappho and Phryne using gambling winnings to catch a man. Remember, it's why Phryne and Sappho raised that monstrous sum. Alas, they fear a man will cost a plum. The Pharaoh ladies were an exclusive circle of inveterate women gamblers who the British press loved to hate. Though there is no evidence that they acknowledged the epithet, the Pharaoh ladies were a tight group of friends who ran gambling dens out of their own homes, socialized often, and spent their recreational time playing cards. The three most infamous Pharaoh ladies were Lady Sarah Archer, Albinia Hobart, who's also Lady Buckinghamshire, and Lady Elizabeth Luttrell. Joined by two lesser-known friends, Mrs. Sturt and Mrs. Concannon, the Pharaoh ladies became an institution of sorts in the 1790s. In 1793, an author of a letter to the editor of the Times targeted gambling in his bid for excise taxes, saying, 
The fair ladies are, in the sporting phase, almost done up. Jewels, trinkets, watches, laces, and such are often at the pawnbrokers, and scarcely anything is left to raise money upon except their pads, which were hair pieces that were in vogue at the time. If justice is to be hoodwinked and gambling and sharking permitted, why not make it an article of revenue, as in foreign countries, and lay a heavy tax on it? Gambling dens and gaming houses dotted both the cityscape of London and the Palladian-style spa town of Bath. Gaming houses were so popular and successful that Georgian gamers developed new forms of old games and new games altogether. There was, for example, Bassett, Hazard, Evens and Odds, Whist, Quadrille, and Roly Poly. Official gaming houses were exclusively masculine settings. The most popular gaming clubs in London were Brooks and White's. These clubs were located in the upmarket Westminster neighborhood of St. James. They were frequented by MPs, peers, and other notables. Their gaming was conspicuous. Behind big picture windows, influential men, and those riding their coattails could be seen by passersby risking their fortunes on cards and dice. Their winnings, losses, and subsequent dramas were advertised and editorialized in the daily papers. Ashton writes, quote, It was at White's Club that play was carried on to an extent which made ravages and large fortunes, the traces of which have not disappeared at present day. It was at White's that General Scott won £200,000. It was at Brooks that Charles James Fox, Selwyn, Lord Carlyle, Lord Robert Spencer and other great Whigs won and lost hundreds of thousands, end quote. In contrast to the masculine settings of official clubs, however, pop-up gaming tables in private homes and in the back rooms of recreational venues were largely hosted by aristocratic women. During the 1790s, the feral ladies rose to prominence due to their hosting of late-night gaming tables. It was the press that dubbed them the feral ladies. Remember Albania Hobart, Lady Sarah Archer, Mrs. Sturt, Mrs. Kincannon, Lady Elizabeth Luttrell. Pharaoh was their game, and the pharaoh table was their domain. Pharaoh, also called pharaoh, like Egyptian pharaoh, um, pharaoh bank or banking, was to the 18th century what Texas Hold'em is to America today. Its rules were easy to learn, and it was thought that it had better odds of winning than other games of chance. Pharaoh was popular in the 19th century in the United States, but was, by the end of the century, overtaken by poker. Though the Pharaoh ladies did themselves gamble as well as operate Pharaoh banks out of their homes, it's unclear whether they saw themselves as a discrete group, uh, much less as an organized criminal enterprise. For the British public, it hardly mattered. Uh, in 1796, Lord Kenyon denounced the feral ladies while dealing with a gambling debt case. He criticized aristocratic women gamblers, saying, They think they are too great for the law, that I wish they could be punished. If any prosecution of this nature are fairly brought before me and the parties are justly convicted, whatever be their rank or station in the country, though they be the first ladies in the land, they shall certainly exhibit themselves on the Hillary. Following Lord Kenyon's pronouncement, the London papers ran cartoons, most notably Gilray's Exaltation of Pharaoh's Daughters, showing the fair ladies in the pillory, debauched and bare-breasted, receiving taunts from rowdy onlookers. The next year, the pharaoh ladies organized a high-stakes pharaoh game at the table of one Mr. Martindale. 
the ladies were fined 50 pounds each. The London Telegraph gleefully pronounced, quote, All the pharaoh ladies are in the utmost agitation, respecting the impending indictments. They used to laugh at the pillory, but now perhaps they may cry in it. End quote. What is that supposed to be a joke for? Like they laughed at the pillories, but now they're going to be oh, in the pillories and, and crying. Cry at them. Ah, yes, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> Fifty pounds seems like a lot. Yeah, well, they were aristocrats; they were rich, right? Yeah. And the pillory thing didn't happen, you know. Um, hmm. but it was kind of always a threat. But why were women gamblers targeted so cruelly when men had been gambling for centuries and were doing so quite openly in the 1790s in London? The context is key here. The rise of feral ladies coincided with the increased visibility of aristocratic women in politics. Several aristocratic women canvassed for the Foxite Whigs during the 1784 parliamentary election. Perhaps the most well-known of these women was Georgiana Cavendish, the Duchess of Devonshire. But Lady Sarah Archer campaigned for Fox as well. And I know there's like a really popular movie with this. And it's either, I think it's um, Natalie Portman or is it Kirsten Dunst? That, no, Kirsten Dunst plays Marie Antoinette, right? Mm-hmm. Natalie Portman plays Georgiana Cavendish. Um, uh, and I think she's just, it's called like the Duchess or something. Aristocratic women such as Archer and Devonshire were tasked with luring respectable working class tradesmen into the Whig party. The pharaoh ladies, like Fox's female canvassers, dared to be visible to enjoy recreation traditionally gendered masculine. This did not end at gambling. Women of fashion were also criticized for their use of snuff, their abuse of spirits, and uh, their reading of novels, their use of cosmetics, and partaking in fashion trends. As the Whig Party sought to harness the power of the middling sort, the ostentatious dress and outlandish behavior of their aristocratic women mascots began to chafe. This was part of a larger swelling of anti-aristocratic sentiment among the middling sort whose fortunes waxed and waned with the market. Hard-working tradesmen often found themselves in the poorhouse through no fault of their own, while privileged aristocrats gambled away a year's wages for an evening's entertainment. Yet rather than the masculine gaming clubs of St. James, which were frequented by members of parliament in the British gentry, it was the pharaoh ladies who came to symbolize the blight of gambling on Georgian society. At this time, British women were easy targets. They could not make or inherit their own money due to English common law. You should check out our episode on coverture if you haven't heard it yet. Um, Women also controlled few of the country's assets. They enjoyed little recourse in secular courts, and they were legally dependent on men, at first their fathers and then their husbands or possibly a benefactor, until death. They could easily be cast as vile spendthrifts, vain and careless with money that was not their own. This was doubly distressing in the 1790s, a time when financial credit was built on personal interaction, and speculation or investment made financial ruin a risk for most. Though there are some similarities, the public's reception of the blue stockings was more mixed. As the OG blue stockings aged, subsequent generations of blue stockings were brought into the fold. Some of them, such as novelist and supporter of the French Revolution, Charlotte Turner Smith, were markedly radical. 
Others, such as Anna Letitia Barbald, who wrote chaste children's literature and, as her husband's helpmeet, ran a school for boys, were the pinnacle of feminine respectability. Like the Pharaoh ladies, however, their celebrity made them particularly vulnerable to criticism. When a blue stocking was involved in some kind of scandal, the disgrace had a ripple effect. Hester Thrale Piozzi's second marriage, for example, drew criticism from her fellow blue stockings who feared for their own reputations. Thrale's husband had died after a drawn-out illness. Three years into her widowhood, Thrale fell in love with an Italian singer and music teacher named Gabriel Mario Piozzi. Piozzi was a humble immigrant whose status fell well below that of the wealthy and influential Hester Thrale. The press accused her of disgracefully, quote, raising an obscure and penniless fiddler into sudden wealth, end quote. How dare she? <laughs> her fellow blue stockings disowned her as a result. In a letter to Elizabeth Vesey, Elizabeth Montague wrote, quote, Mrs. Threll's marriage has taken such horrible possession of my mind. I cannot avert on any other subject. I'm sorry, and I feel the worst kind of sorrow, that which is blended with shame. When one laments and weeps over the disgrace of a friend, bitter are the sensations. And as the cause of one's grief is an object of contempt and scorn, one cannot disburden the heart by communicating its sufferings, but shuts it up with all its poisonous and baleful qualities. I am myself convinced that the poor woman is mad, and indeed have long suspected her mind was disordered. She was the best mother, the best wife the best friend, the most amiable member of society. She gave the most prudent attention to her husband's business during his long state of imbecility and after his death till she had the opportunity of disposing well of the great brewery. He was a brewer. I bring my verdict of lunacy in this affair. I respected Mrs. Thrale and was proud of the honor she did to the human and female character in fulfilling all the domestic duties and cultivating her mind with whatever might adorn it. I would give much to make everyone think of her as mad. The best and the wisest are liable to lunacy. If she's not considered in that light, she must throw a disgrace on her sex. End quote. It's a little bit dramatic, I think. <laughs> but now, it's easy to retroactively read Victorian sensibilities on 18th century peoples. Once again, Victorian historians are very good at this. But if you listen to Marissa's other episodes, you'll know that Georgian London was a colorful place. It was full of vices that the Victorians took great pains to either criticize or euphemize in their histories of England. For example, from the 1720s to the 1750s, the gin craze shook London society. By 1743, Britons were drinking 2.2 gallons of gin per person per year a vice that was curbed only by raising grain prices in the 1750s. Poverty triggered crimes of opportunity, begging, homelessness, and rising arrests for vagrancy, thievery, and prostitution. 18th century people were having casual sex. Yes, this has almost always been a thing. But at this particular time and place, casual sex was valorized somewhat by libertinism and romanticism. This, plus many other factors, led to rampant venereal disease, unwed motherhood, child support litigation, and infant abandonment. 
One recent study of infirmary records for the city of Chester found that 8% of the residents of Chester had venereal disease during the 1770s. Oh, God. For comparison's sake, in 2016, approximately 1% of the population of England was diagnosed with syphilis that year. This was the highest level since 1949. Yeah, I would, yeah that's, that's, uh, that's a lot of syphilis, uh, England. Get it together. Mm-hmm. And it triggered a serious evaluation of public health efforts. Right. So they're freaking – so 1%, yeah, that seems really high. That's very high. 8% is like one-tenth of every person in the city had venereal disease in the 1770s. It's a lot of venereal disease. That's a lot of (laughs) pussy penises. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Upward social mobility, mixed caste marriages, and women gamblers were becoming more common or at least more commonly known thanks to the growth of a media-fueled popular culture. At the same time, competing understandings of womanhood were solidifying into a pre-Victorian model which historian Linda Colley calls woman power. The criticisms of Lady Sarah Archer, the Duchess of Devonshire, Lady Buckinghamshire, and the rest of the feral ladies were reinforced by an assumption that if women of fashion were distracting themselves with gambling, dancing, reading, and intoxicants, there was no way they had enough time or concentration to do their real jobs properly. Mothering. The middle classes were particularly critical of aristocratic vice. Eager to distinguish themselves from the aristocracy, middling people framed themselves as a moral majority of sorts. Reformers began attacking aristocratic vice in the 1780s and the 1790s, but widespread support was slow growing. Abolitionist William Wilberforce painstakingly grew the movement, rebranding the Society for the Reform of Manners, uh, which was founded in the 1690s, into London Society for the Suppression of Vice in 1802. Though Wilberforce was the official godfather of English vice hunting, it was women reformers uh, who made the movement flourish. The Society for the Suppression of Vice continued to be run by men, but moralizing literature by women writers made vice reform mainstream. A growing contingent of well-educated women, some with radical Republican politics, took to criticizing the fashionable vices. So, for example, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote, quote, Instead of gaming, they might nourish a virtuous ambition. And love might take place of the gallantry which you, with knightly fealty, venerate. Women would probably then act like mothers, and the fine lady, become a rational woman, might think it necessary to superintend her family and suckle her children in order to fulfill her part of the social compact. But vain is the hope, whilst the great masses of property are hedged round by hereditary honors. The respect paid to rank and fortune damps every generous purpose of the soul and stifles the natural affections on which human contentment ought to be built, end quote. Wollstonecraft uh, had sex outside of marriage. She gave birth to an illegitimate daughter. She traveled to France and actually witnessed the reign of terror. She wrote about suicide as an act of resistance. Um, She purportedly attempted suicide several times before her death and childbirth in 1797. She lived a transgressive life, but even she felt like she was in a position to criticize women gamblers in a way that disrupted their claim to womanhood. Mm -hmm. She's kind of saying, these aren't real women because they're, you know, doing all these horrible things. Mm -hmm. They should be mothering and reading and enlightening themselves and teaching their children. Okay. 
Rehabilitated ladies of fashion oftentimes matured into moralizing vice hunters. Mary Robinson, a poet actress who was an object of both adoration and abhorrence, lived a life ruined by gambling. She married Thomas Robinson out of a sense of duty. Soon she discovered that he had fabricated an impending inheritance. He lived a lavish lifestyle and gambled extravagantly, spending Mary's own family money. He was eventually imprisoned in the Fleet Prison for debt. Mary and their infant daughter stayed with him during his sentence in the Fleet Prison for debt. <laughs> during their prison stay, Mary wrote an anthology of poems and earned the patronage of the Duchess of Devonshire. She went on to become a much-loved poetess and actress, but she suffered slight damage to her reputation when it became known that she carried on several extramarital affairs. One of her lovers was the Prince of Wales, future George IV himself. Nonetheless, she became London's favorite poet and was nicknamed the English Sappho. Remember, we're, we're coming up with lots of Sapphos at this point, and I'll talk about that soon. Um, this was a label that was both complimentary and insulting um, in equal measure, and, and I'll explain why in a minute. In 1800, Robinson published a scathing censure of vicious habits among aristocratic couples. So this is a poet-actress who lived for like 10 years in a debt prison, right? So this is not some high and mighty-like woman, right? Quote, men now devote their hours to clubs, to gaming tables, to tennis courts, and to cricket grounds. Wives are left to roam or permitted to hold their midnight orgies with the most dissipated of their own as well as of the other sex. Play involves them in debt of honor, which the sacrifice of honor too frequently discharges. And it's an absolute fact that even the family jewels and the family plate have been disposed of to supply the pharaoh bank of one of those infamous scenes of profligate debasement. While the husband has been the passive spectator and the daughter is employed at places of public entertainment as decoys to ensnare the young, the wealthy, and the unwary, unquote. Oh, now she needs to calm down. Scandalous. By the 1790s, many of the blue stockings had been discredited by old age or personal scandal. Few were able to combine literary genius and feminine politesse. Hannah Moore was the only exception among the OG blue stockings. A philanthropist, evangelist, and writer, Moore took up vice reform in the 1780s. Her most influential moral publications, however, were released as serial pamphlets between 1795 and 1817. And if you'll remember, she was nicknamed Saint Hannah. Moore was an amphibious woman, able to move easily between literary and reformist circles. Her reputation and virtue remained unimpeachable for her entire life. Um, she sounds like a, like she was kind of a snooze button. Yeah. Yeah. Ordinary women followed Moore's example, which to them proved that women could be rational, edu educated women, but also good Christian wives and mothers at the same time. Heaven forbid. Okay, so influential men were skeptical of this, of this ability of women to do both, right? Upon meeting fabled Byronic poet Letitia Elizabeth Landon, she was known as Eliel. She was also called the English Sappho. Upon meeting her, Irish poet Thomas Moore wrote, quote, Miss Eliel, girlish enough in manner, affectedly so, indeed, but no girl at heart. 
no exception to the bad opinion I entertain of such literary hermaphrodites. This sort of talent unsexes a woman, end quote. So in the words of literary scholar Lucasta Miller, Moore believed that a Sappho, quote, forfeited her feminine claim on men's respect and chivalrous protection, end quote. So basically because these women were um, either gambling or um, pursuing literary pursuits, they were no longer, uh, they no longer fell within the patriarchal protection that they deserved as like um, wives that they would have deserved if they had been kind of more uh, like true women, right? The British public had reached a consensus that literary brilliance was simply incompatible with feminine virtue. Despite their antithetical approaches to aristocratic womanhood, both the Blue Stockings and the Pharaoh Ladies were derisively labeled Sapphos. As you probably noticed, we talked about a lot of women nicknamed Sapphos. Mm -hmm. It was confusing, but now it will make sense. Sappho was a Greek poet from the 7th century before the Common Era, born on the island of Lesbos. In Georgian Britain, calling someone a Sappho was an insult, absolutely. The epithet denoted not only literary prowess, but also immorality, deviant sexuality, and shameful gender-bending behavior. Uh, Alexander Pope later denied that Sappho stood in for Lady Mary, writing, quote, I was far from designing a person of her condition by a name so derogatory to her as that of Sappho, a name prostituted to every infamous creature that ever wrote verse or novels. Um, side note, literary scholars call bullshit because in his second edition, Pope briefly renamed Sappho's character Flavia, which was Lady Mary's pen name. Right, so afterwards people were like, we can't believe that you called Lady Mary Montague so respected, not like a Sappho. Why would you do that? And he's like, I would never. I would never do such a thing. He, I'm, I'm good. But he's full of it. So but he, he did. did. Sappho and her home island of Lesbos would come to represent same-sex desiring women. This happened precisely because the English-speaking world no longer believed that educated literary women could attain true womanhood which was, of course, defined as being a man's counterpart, right? So in the collective imagination of readers of English literature, the figure of the blue stocking, or remember the literary hermaphrodite, which is such a great term, split into two descendant stereotypes, the lesbian and the scold. On March 27, 1797, the London Debating Society took up the following question. So let's, so let's think about this for a second. This is a London Debating Society university students, gentlemen, respected men in the community are getting together at this debating society to have a formal debate, right? Kind of like how you would in, I don't know, high school or college debating team, right? So here's the question. Which is the greater plague to her husband and disgrace of her sex? The untamed scold of St. Giles or the fashionable female gamester of St. James? We're already familiar with the female gamesters of St. James. Obviously, this most of this episode has been about the feral ladies and their friends, right? But who are the untamed skulls of St. Giles, right? We don't, we haven't encountered these untamed skulls. So this, um, this now obscure uh, allusion is to a Restoration Era ballad by Martin Parker called A Banquet for Sovereign Husbands. 
The ballad describes an incident in the parish of St. Giles where the men conspired to roast and eat a ram, but knowing their wives would object to the pursuit, quote, scarce a man durst draw his knife for fear he should displease his wife, end quote. So it's about this, like, having a bossy wife, right? So the debate team is arguing about who is a bigger disgrace to their sex and more of a problem for their husband. Is it these female gamblers or is it... uh, untamed skulls or like a shrew would be you know another uh thing to, a way to to identify a scold so basically the debating society was laying out a new binary the debauched female gamester and the untamed scold the quality about the blue stockings most feared by influential men their artistic authority and rational education were recast as the purview of lesbians and frigid old maids they need not work their belabored man brains to reconcile literary authority with demure femininity. The blue stockings' impressive refinement and moral rectitude were boiled down into the untamed scold. The scold bossed her husband around, told him when to bathe, what to eat, and to whom he should pay social calls. She also chided him for drinking, for impulsively roasting rams, and for gambling away his pay as one does. <laughs> Obviously, these are exaggerations, right? And they don't exactly resemble real life, um, but they're, they're literary symbols equating to what a scold would do to her husband. Right. And sort of based on these very well-known um, sort of celebrity women societies, mm. right? Moralizing reformers will turn in their graves when I say this. So, um, but it's true. There's no evidence that their efforts changed behavior. It did, however, uh, change how behaviors of vice were acknowledged. Regency Britain entered what literary scholars and historians call the era of demi-connaissance, which is half-consciousness in French. People continued to indulge in all the same vices, but they relegated those vices to their private lives and presented a squeaky clean persona to the outside. This demi-connaissance is personified by Regency poet um, Eliel, who we mentioned earlier in this episode, she indulged in premarital sex with her literary agent and bore three secret children out of wedlock, all while pretending to be a virtuous teenage literary prodigy. So she, like, wore her hair like she was a girl because she pretended to be younger than she is. Actually, she was, you know, a mother of three. It was, um, but... I also do this. My hair color. Do you? <laughs> try to pretend to I try to be a teen. young girl. I want to be a young girl. <laughs> So though in some cases the literary activities of the blue stockings were transformed into reform efforts aimed at the feral ladies and their ilk, both groups were radical in that they challenged the dominant patriarchal framework and triggered crises in gender norms. Both women's groups sought to dominate realms that were traditionally masculine. The feral ladies were associated with increased female visibility in partisan politics and used as the archetypal example of aristocratic vice. They appropriated gaming for themselves and found meaning in life outside the nursery. The Blue Stockings' view on female education and womanly sovereignty were also radical, and their publications occasionally ruffled the feathers of important Brits. But still, the blue stockings insulated themselves from patriarchal backlash by framing themselves as a moral minority. Remember, Hester Thrale Piozzi lost the esteem of her dear friends upon her second marriage and left the society as a result. 
the conduct of blue stocking adjacent uh, Wollstonecraft and Robinson fell well outside the limits of respectability. Um, but but their conspicuous enthusiasm for motherhood and their literary careers insulated them from ruin. Still, their radicalism earned them complicated legacies that many blue stockings eschewed. In this way, they were quite traditional. So in the end, I think the story kind of shows how women's like recreational groups, special interest groups, political groups, how these help to create and then contest and then sort of remake and reform over time gender norms and patriarchal societies. And I think something that's interesting is that um, and we still we see still today is that celebrity kind of raises the stakes for everything, right? So um, the fair ladies and the blue stockings, they were aristocratic women, so they probably would have been kind of well-known and in the papers anyway, but because they had this um, sort of group that was challenging gender norms for their station and their sex, they were uh, even more vulnerable to criticism. And um, we'll put in the blog post, uh, Albinia Hobart, for example, she was very overweight and she was like called, I don't know, a beefsteak, like an aristocratic beefsteak. And she, there was always um, cartoons of her and her breasts were always out and she was always like toothless and disgusting. Um, they were very, uh, very unkind. And uh, the same could be for the blue stockings. So the blue stockings, I think their legacy was kind of... Um, reshaped a little bit by Victorians who kind of admired them a little bit more. Um, at the time, people were kind of pissed off that these women who were supposed to be um, wives and mothers and focusing on um, education, but only for the purpose of teaching their children, um, they were kind of not really having kids or having very few kids and focusing on these other areas of life. And so... The blue stockings, I think, is where we get this idea that, um, you know, that you can't have it all. You can't do both. You can't, you know, have even Hannah Moore, who supposedly was, you know, pure and also uh, a literature, you know, um, figure, a literary figure. Um, she didn't get married and have kids, mm -hmm. specifically because she didn't think she could do both. Um, there was no one who did both and whose reputation survived because of it. Mm -hmm. um, Hester Threll Piozzi did both, um, and she was appreciated at the time for having done both, um, having 12 children, two husbands, helping him work at his brewery, and also um, being a very well-renowned um, you know, poet. Uh, she kind of did both, but um, eventually her reputation kind of went down the tubes because mm. because of it so it's sort of um an interesting thing because these societies show us um how collective efforts by women um how they function inside patriarchal societies right the reason why feral ladies came to um sort of personify the vice of gambling was because they were women right um there was plenty of uh rich and powerful and influential men who were wasting their time gambling um, they weren't of concern so much, mm -hmm. right? Um, all of this sort of anger and um, scorn was aimed at women. Um, you know, and that's not to say that that's how all of these things work in patriarchal societies, but uh, it's just sort of um, interesting how how that works. And, you know, I think it's very different from Sarah's um, episode about male fraternities. Mm -hmm. um, they're trying to, like, I don't know, 
get away. And you can sort of see this thing of the scold where, like, oh, I'm trying to get away from my wife and just drink all I want and ride this fake pony or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so there's an an element of escapism in both cases, but the women are escaping from patriarchal norms, right? Right. And and in some ways, so are the men. You know, they have to provide for their family and, um, you know, be the ideal husband and all this stuff, and they're trying to escape from that. Yeah. So it's just sort of interesting. I wanted to make sure that we got some women's groups that were made for women by women yeah. and kind of see how they fare in these. Um, yeah. I think the groups that were auxiliaries of men's groups, you know, they did a lot better and had a much better reputation. I think it's interesting that Edmund Burke mm-hmm. was involved with the Blue Stockings considering how anti-revolution he was. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this is only on my mind because He's I've super, been super, super conservative. Yeah, I've been yeah. developing a French Revolution class. So, mm-hmm. and one of the critiques of the revolution was the sort of gender equality that many of the know, revolutionaries, French revolutionaries, that Mary Wollstonecraft mm-hmm. were espousing, um, and right. how that would destabilize, you know, the glorious constitutional monarchy of Britain. So mm-hmm. it's. It, I'd like to know more about that. Yeah, it's really strange. And and if you think about it, um, in some ways, the blue stocking sort of transformed into people who who um, positioned themselves against conservatism mm-hmm. and and the aristocracy, but most of them were aristocratic. Right. Yeah. Um, and True. they're the only ones who had access to these um, very in depth uh, educations that they needed to sort mm-hmm. of be witty and kind of spar with other men. Yeah. Um, and I think when it, with Edmund Burke and, like, Samuel Johnson is another example, um, they're both sort of conservative men, but they were really involved. I think part of it is that this was, they the women were um, an oddity mm. to them. Mm-hmm. Like, they found it so interesting mm. that, that the fair sex... Uh, could kind of uh, level with them intellectually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for them, it was, yeah, just sort of, um, like, almost offensive in a way, almost like like putting them on a pedestal, like, oh, aren't, aren't they cute? Mm. Like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the impression I get. Yeah. Um, they were close and genuine friends, so I, I think there was more than that, but... I think that that was that was part of it, but yeah, it's a it's a long thing, and some scholars use blue stocking with a capital B hmm. to refer to Montague and her circle, and then anyone else after that who is like blue stocking adjacent, yeah, they um, will do blue stocking with a lowercase lower b, b yeah. because it becomes something else. Um, but even like most recently, scholars of the 18th century have started to do uppercase the whole time because they're trying to show change over time. Like mm. yeah. The the OG blue stockings were one thing, um, a little more conservative. Um, you know, uh, more of them tended to be married, that sort of thing. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the kinds of women that the blue stockings attracted kind of became more and more radicalized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not exactly. There were still some very, like, laced-up ladies who came later. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, and, and then the OG blue stockings... Um, saw that this blue stocking society was was turning into something that it hadn't been for them. So they started saying like, "No, I'm not a blue stocking." And so it became this um, this this kind of etymological game of like, "What does blue stocking even mean?" Yeah. 
Um, and it definitely turned into an insult. Mm-hmm. You know, it started, and I, I tried to show why that was. It started to mean, if you were called a blue stocking, okay, well, then you're a lesbian or you're a scold wife, a scolding yeah. wife. Right, you know, it's these stereotypes, yeah, they don't exactly correlate to real life, but they shaped, um, they, they were all sort of like archetypes that were familiar to people, and it shaped the way that they interpreted um, their lives. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah, it is very strange. A mixture of, you know, very radical and very conservative. That's kind of how the Whigs are, too. I mean, they were True. all filthy rich, and there was tons of aristocrats that were Whigs. Yeah. But they were also fighting against royalists. Right. Like, so it's... Yeah. It's a it's a, a strange... Um, a strange situation. I'm and I always thought of Whigs as, like, the middle-class party. And they are, because they champion those ideas yeah because they're middle class in a british sense because they're not gentry and peers mostly they're mostly like you know um real estate tycoons and stuff like that they're like self-made men more and they tried to appeal to tradesmen and to working class people so i always thought of them as like middle class but they're not and so blue stockings are they're very whiggish they're they are positioning themselves as somewhat radical and learned and um rational they constantly call themselves rational mm-hmm. um as you know as opposed to the feral ladies who were like these debauched old aristocratic ladies who you know wore tons of makeup and just did what people told them to do yeah not exactly what yeah. was happening right but um yeah so the blue stockings it, they kind of follow a similar trajectory to the wigs i think yeah but still very much within the larger context of the enlightenment Mm-hmm. And the ideas that yep. are being permeated, especially with the rationalism. Yeah, it kind of connects. I think these societies sort of connect, like the Enlightenment and that 18th century um, sort of obsession with rationality and things mm-hmm. in, into Victorian morality. Mm. You can kind of see like the slow, yeah, like creep. Yeah. yeah, the slow creep um, towards Victorian morality and what yeah. that meant for women. Hmm. Interesting. I like this episode. Cool. That's it. Uh, yeah, that's all we have for you today. So make sure you follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join our Dig Pod Squad Facebook group. And uh, we thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. See ya in the next series. See ya. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig. Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. She indulged in premeditation. The rise of the feral ladies coincided with the increased visibility of aristocratic. Aristocratic. Society for the suppression. The society for the. Future George III. Wait, no. Future George IV himself. Moore was an amphibious. She liked to swim. She can move between one and the other. That's. It's just a. Oh. It's just a. Analogous. It's just a it's just a term that people talk about yeah. people with. But you can move between amphibians can move between water and land, and amphibious mm. people can move between like rich and poor or like. Mm. Mm. <laughs> okay, let me just wrap my mind around saying it without giggling, because she was not a tadpole. Mm. Probably didn't have too many extramarital affairs. Womp, she wasn't married. Oh, well, any affairs. She died a virgin, man. No, that poor, dry old vagina.